would, grab a Bible and turn with me to the letter of James. And having spent the last several months in Zechariah, we now turn to a New Testament book. And if you haven't noticed, I've subtitled our series in James, Living the Implanted Word. The implanted word comes from verse 21 uh, of chapter 1 in James, uh, where James exhorts us to receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And the picture is one of God's word taking root in our lives. It's one of the Holy Spirit writing the law of God upon our hearts. And when that word takes root, it it produces the fruit of obedience, faithfulness, integrity, compassion for the poor, purity in speech, humility in our relationships. The implanted word, in other words, isn't just something we hear, it's something we do. Something that compels us morally, ethically, and socially. We live the implanted word. And that will be a key emphasis throughout the letter of James. And one of the great things about letters in the New Testament is they're they're very situational. They're, They're dealing with very specific issues in the church or the members of a church. You know, situations rise, uh, they need counsel, and so a Peter or a James or a John or Paul would pick up the pen and write to address these, these various things. James is a leader in the Jerusalem church. He sees real things happening in the lives of people just like you and me. Some good, some not so good. And he's writing to address those specific things so that the church better lives out the word that's already been implanted within them. So James dives right into your life and in some rather practical Ways and in some fairly unsettling ways. James is not a letter you read lightheartedly. Uh, he, he holds a mirror in your face and says, you, you see here, you, you see here, 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 here. Um, the implanted word, it produces this kind of living, not that kind of living. You stay in that kind of living, you're a hypocrite. You need to walk this way. So by diving into the specifics of our lives, James becomes also a gracious gift from a good father who knows what we need most. We, we don't belong to a father who carelessly lets his children go astray. We belong to a father who cares that we take the road that leads to deeper intimacy with him, who cares that we don't live in hypocrisy, who cares that we do what is good for us and for others and for God's glory. So today, James will address the specific topic of trials and how we should respond to trials. And I want to say at the outset that I'm certainly not here. This has been a hard text to read through. 
this week just for myself. Um, So I don't claim to have this down in my own life, but want it more. He's going to address this topic of trials and how we should respond to trials. Uh, But I want you to notice first uh, how James uh, greets his readers. It's just a remarkable greeting. Verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. The twelve tribes in the dispersion indicates that James writes to a primarily Jewish Christian audience. At the same time, uh, chapter 5, verse 14 refers to this people as uh, the church. Uh, So it may be true that James's audience consists of primarily Jewish Christians... Uh, but it's the Jewish Christians insofar as they belong to the New Covenant community, the church. And thus James's message is relevant for all who belong to the church, regardless of their ethnicity. But that's because we share one thing in common. Regardless of our ethnic background, regardless uh, of what we were saved out of, uh, we all have this in common, we are all slaves of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how James introduces himself. Uh, The ESV has servant, but the better translation is slave. Not slave in the sense of demeaning someone's personal worth, but slave in the sense of all rights being surrendered. Slave in the sense of a humble submission to a new master. Slave in the sense of belongingness to God being purchased and and owned by Christ. We see this contrast in other places in the New Testament. Galatians 1.10, for example, Paul says that if he were a man-pleaser, he would no longer be a slave of Christ. Uh, Again, in 1 Corinthians 7.23, Paul tells the church, you were bought with a price, so namely the the price of Jesus' blood. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. James means something similar. He's he's no longer a slave to people. He's no longer a slave to the passions of his flesh. He's a slave of God. His allegiance belongs to Jesus. He's duty-bound to serve Him. And so what we're reading aren't the words of an arrogant, heavy-handed leader. Interestingly enough, this James is the half-brother of Jesus... Paul called him a pillar in the Jerusalem church. He is a witness to the resurrected Christ. You know, why not play one of those cards in writing to the church? You know, lay down your aces. I not only saw the resurrected Christ, I grew up with him. Listen to me. That's not how he begins. James, slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're reading words from one slave to another about how to serve our master. He calls us his brothers in verse 2, or brothers and sisters. He's one of us. We're one of him, bought with a price, belonging to God and to the Lord Jesus. So this letter opens with grace. We were once enslaved to sin, but grace has freed us. Now we're slaves to a new master. We belong to, to him, Jesus Christ. 
But what does it look like to live as a slave of God through trial? What does it look like to surrender all rights to Jesus in the face of trial? And James tells us in verses 2 to 4, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is what I meant about James diving into the specifics of your life. I mean, uh, how many of us can already identify with meeting various trials? Let me see your hands. Okay, some of you must have already entered glory. (laughs) He doesn't say if you meet trials. He says when you meet trials. He assumes we're a people facing trials. He knows the brokenness of the world. He knows what sin may cause. He sees his people suffering. And he calls attention to this reality, this reality of various trials. And what are some of the trials that may cross James's mind as he's writing to these, to these uh, people? Well, you can pick them up with just a quick read through his, through his letter. Uh, some folks are facing poverty, we will see. Economic crises that are out of, out of their control. Uh, Some of them are getting shafted by the rich who are showing favoritism and uh, and injustice. So other people's sin are bringing trial into their lives. Uh, James mentions the suffering of the prophets as an example in chapter 5. So it's it's obvious that persecution and and ridicule would, would be in his mind. And he also mentions Job as an example. And we could list several trials that Job faced, can we? Robbery of his possessions, the murdering of his servants, catastrophe that fell on his family, the pain of losing the children that he so dearly loved, himself being struck with loathsome sores all over his body, a wife who tells him to curse God and die, friends who'd be better better off keeping their mouths shut. And then James also mentions sickness in James chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. Various trials. What do yours look like right now? We have small trials and big ones. Rachel went to the store the other day while I'm cooking breakfast... It's dangerous when that happens. Not because I can't cook, but because we have four kids. Um, But within five minutes of trying to cook some eggs, I'm trying to bring peace between siblings, clean up yogurt that just got jerked off the counter, and the littlest one comes around the corner, and her hands are solid black. From here to here with mom's paints. Right? And the eggs are on the stove. They're starting to smell, you know, that smell when you're like, yeah, it's too, too far, too done. 
And I've got all kinds of inner turmoil trying to not give in to the flesh at this moment. This is five minutes. Five minutes. You moms serve all day long with these kinds of trials. Or how about the strains you face when close family members turn hateful because of your love for righteousness? Uh, Or you get strep throat and the flu at the same time. I'm talking about people in here. Or for three weeks, sickness goes through the family and you feel like you've been cast outside the camp of Redeemer. The next kid's getting it and then the next kid's getting it. You just went back inside the camp. Or you lose loved ones, precious ones. Death takes them away. You, you experience a miscarriage. You get more bad news on what your chronic disease is causing inside your body. Another unexpected medical bill that you can't afford. You just want your spouse to be okay. You're surprised to learn the negative things another brother thinks about you. The church budget isn't what you expected. The darkness of depression enters your life. Your friends in other countries are being threatened for their faith. Various trials... It's inevitable that we will face various trials, especially as Christians. One of the first things Paul would would teach new believers was this. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. One of the first things he's teaching these. This is basic discipleship. Trials, many of which are outside of our control. Some of the trials we face because of our own sinful choices... But many of the trials that I listed above are simply outside of our control. I mean, Job couldn't control what happened to him. The prophets couldn't control what the people did to them. We can't control what a broken and sinful world often throws at us. We can't control what God's providence orchestrates for our lives or for our church. But we can control the way we respond. And that's where James leads us next. Our response to trials... There's a, there's a wrong way to respond to trial, and we find that other places in Scripture. We could think of the Israelites in the wilderness who complained, and murmured. We can think of people being quick to get angry at others who have hurt them. Uh, we can think of others running from the trials to find comfort in the world, like the, uh, one of the, in the parable of the four soils, and trials and persecution comes, and they're, they're out. They're, they want the world instead of Jesus. But James' exhortation is otherworldly, uh, countercultural. It's, it's unnatural to our, our selfish flesh. You know, we want to be comfortable and we want our lives to be un- uninterrupted by trials. And when that's not what we get, we have a tendency to groan and complain and get angry with God. But what's the proper response James gives us? He gives us two exhortations here. The first exhortation is this. He says... Count it all joy. Count it all joy. And I want you to be careful here. It's not count it all joy, as if everything about the trials are joyful. It's count it all joy, where all is intensifying the joy here. Some, some translations call it pure joy or complete joy. 
You see, the Bible also says that trials bring grief and sorrow. Uh, we're commanded to weep with those who weep, Romans 12 says. Uh, 1 Peter 1 says that various trials have grieved us. Uh, Paul was once worried about his friend Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus got sick and God spared him. And uh, lest, lest Paul, it says, should have sorrow upon sorrow. So there's a place for sorrow. James isn't contradicting those things. This isn't a kind of just grin and bear it theology. Powder your face with sunshine. Rather, James is showing us that even in the midst of the sorrow caused by these various trials, there's still still also a reason for rejoicing. The expression on your face and the agony in your gut may not be chipper. You know, he's not expecting heel clicks when you're holding your friend at at his hospital bed. But he is saying that these various trials in our lives are somehow occasions for great joy. And this is a pattern we see throughout the New Testament. I mean, Jesus says that when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, to rejoice... In Acts 16.25, Paul and Silas are put in prison and, and you find them praying and singing hymns to God. Uh, Paul can say things like, In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. I mean, how, how can both be possible? For the Christian, both are possible because of who we are in Christ. We have fellowship with God. We're already new creations. We're already participating in the glorious realities of the age to come. We have a loving Father who cares for us. But this new creation, you know, it's not here in full. And so we also groan for the Lord's purposes to be completed this sorrowful yet always rejoicing. It's, it's part of the overlap of the ages, the already not yet tension uh, of this age that we live in. Yes, there's reason for sorrow, but the resurrection of Jesus and God's sovereign orchestration of all things for His good purposes means there's also reason for joy. Joy, I'll try to give you a definition here, pulling together some things from many different passages that we won't have time to look at today. But joy is that deep delight in God, that settled contentment in God, produced by the Holy Spirit, who gives us a proper perspective in every situation. I'll say that again. Joy is that deep delight in God, a a settled contentment in God, Produced by the Holy Spirit, who gives us a proper perspective in every situation. Galatians 5.22 says that joy is the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Romans 15.13 says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy. So joy is a gift from God. He gives it to us by the Spirit. And and it's possible that that He even give us this joy through trial. 
But part of the way the Holy Spirit works that joy in us is through a proper perspective in every situation. Uh, pay attention to verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You see, somebody's already come in before James is writing. They have discipled this church and they already know something. They know something, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The work of the Holy Spirit and right thinking, they go together. Joy comes in trial when you know something about the trials. You're not just looking at the trials, but through the trials to all that your good Father will do for you. And what he says here is that the trials test our faith in Christ. We have to remember that in the New Testament. Faith always has an object. And that object is Christ. Okay? It's faith in the person of Christ that's in view. And our personal act of trusting Christ is being tested in every trial we face. The trials test our faith so that the kind of faith that comes out the other side leads to greater steadfastness in our obedience. This word for testing, it appears a few other places in Scripture in, uh, uh, in connection with the testing of precious metals. Uh, we've looked at this before when we were in Zechariah 13, but in order to make precious metals shine, you have to remove the impurities. And the only way to do that is to put it through fire. Fire exposes and burns off the impurities, and then the, then the metal is tested. It's, 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 its quality is judged. And if the impurities still exist, it goes back into the fire. And this process gets repeated until the refiner can see his reflection in the metal. Trials test the genuineness of our faith in this way. In his book, Trusting God, Jerry Bridges, who uh, actually went to be with the Lord a, a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, trusting God, Jerry Bridges, he writes, We may think we have true Christian love until someone offends us or treats us unjustly. Then we begin to see anger and resentment well up within us. We may think that we have learned about genuine Christian joy until... Our lives are shattered by an unexpected calamity or grievous disappointment. Adversities spoil our peace and they try our patience. God uses those difficulties to reveal to us our need to grow. The trials are various because our remaining sin is various. Our lack of trust in Christ often hides in places that we don't even uh, know about until we face the fire of trial. But when faith is tested and purified, there's a greater confidence in who Christ is. There's more assurance that He's more valuable than whatever else I was valuing when I got angry. That he's more precious than whatever possession I impatiently lost. 
that his love is, is enough even when other people betray me. That he's better than life itself when the persecution comes. You see, each trial leads us to ask whether Christ is worth our love, worth our obedience, worth our speech, worth our possessions. And when we keep saying, yes, he is, yes, he is, yes, he is, our character as a disciple, it gets stronger and stronger. The tested faith, the tested faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness in what? Well, steadfastness in fidelity to our master, Jesus. Steadfastness isn't a passive idea. It's very proactive. It's, 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 it's doing something in relation to Christ. It's the act of bearing up in the face of difficulty. Tested faith strengthens our ability to stay Christian when the weight of the circumstances are about to break you. Steadfastness has to do with the ability to stay devoted to righteousness and love for others in spite of the stress. It has to do with pressing on as a disciple when the world would tell you to walk away from Jesus. So in the end, here's what we've got. We've got, we've got trials. They do cause sorrow, but they're not meaningless. When they're viewed from the proper perspective, they're also occasions for great joy. They're occasions for great joy because all of them ultimately serve to refine our faith. And then that refined faith clings tighter and tighter to Jesus... And when that happens, we're then enabled to remain steadfast when the rest of the world would have said, give up on this Christian thing. So when you're a Job, and even your own wife says, just curse God and die, you still say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or uh, you sang this song earlier by uh, 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 It Is Well With My Soul. That's written by Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford, you know, he watched the Chicago fire of 1871 absolutely ruin him financially. Uh, All that he had worked for uh, was burnt up. And even worse, after that... He then lost four daughters in a shipwreck over the Atlantic. And all he got back was a telegram from his wife, Anna, saying, Saved alone. And you can eventually write a hymn saying, It is well with my soul. When this, what James is saying here, has really worked into your heart, you can write a hymn After all of that, it is well with my soul. And he wrote that hymn, passing over the place. Wrote it on a a boat, passing over the place where his daughters were killed. How can such a joy be possible? It's possible only by grace. It's possible... When the Holy Spirit gives us this proper perspective. In God's often strange providence, these trials end up producing steadfastness in the one who is trusting in Christ. It's it's not that we seek out the trials. 
but that when they come to us, we can be sure that God has a good purpose for us in them. We can ask Him in the midst of trial, you know, and that's where we're going next week. There's a reason, uh, there's a reason that James follows this section up with prayer next week. Right? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. We need wisdom in order to endure these trials. We can ask God, though. We can ask Him in the midst of trial, Father, where are you seeing that my faith in you needs to grow? As your slave, what rights am I claiming that I need to surrender? These are the kinds of questions we ask when we face trial. As my good master, would you please give me further steadfastness where I am weak? And he will be generous to answer. James then gives us a second exhortation. It says, let steadfastness have its full effect. So the first one, count it all joy. This next one, let steadfastness have its full effect. And what we're seeing here is that steadfastness that we, we looked at in verse 3, it's not an end in itself. Steadfastness contributes to an even greater goal. What does it say in verse 4? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's the purpose. But the command suggests that we can potentially interrupt that purpose. We can frustrate the process by abandoning steadfastness and by abandoning obedience. Trials don't guarantee our maturity in the faith. We have a responsibility. We must respond to them with faith in Christ and continue in steadfastness. We can't turn to resentment or complaining or cynicism or, or bitterness. A few of you have experienced trial and betrayal, betrayal that hurts. But your bitterness over these things is hindering your growth as a Christian. You've built walls, perhaps, to, to protect yourself from, from getting hurt any further instead of finding your security in Christ. And that's hindering your steadfastness and love towards other people. We must let, allow steadfastness to have its full effect. Or another way to translate it is its complete and total work in us. And that means persevering in the things Christ has called us to, like sacrificial love, regardless of the unloving actions of others. And when we do let such steadfastness have its effect, we increasingly become perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Jesus uses the same word for perfect at the end of chapter 5 in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll see lots of connections with the Sermon on the Mount. It's almost like James is copying the Sermon on the Mount sometimes. Uh, but this is one of them. Uh, Jesus uses the same word here. He says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's Matthew 5.48. Uh, Paul uses this same word uh, again and again to speak of our maturity in Christ-likeness. And that maturity being the goal, the, the, 
That's what we're, that's what we're all after. We want to be perfect in Christ. And that's certainly what James means as well. Uh, if you look down at verse 17, he uses the same word to speak of God's perfect gifts. Uh, and then again in verse 25, to speak of God's perfect law. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 2, he uses it uh, to speak about the man who actually has full control of his tongue. In, in his speech, he's a perfect man. That means the, the, the word of God so controls his mouth uh, that he is showing that uh, perfection, that conformity to, Christ, to, to God's perfect law. And so the idea is that trials help us become like a man who reflects the character of God, our Father. Or like a man who reflects the character of Christ. I mean, Christ is the only man who is perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Sometimes Christians brush aside the pursuit of the perfect and the complete because, you know, after all, we'll never really be that way in this life. But while perfection is certainly held out as the way we live, as the way we will live in the end, in the kingdom to come, it also refers to the consistent Christ-like behavior we should want to practice in the present. That's all over the New Testament. We should want the perfect God through His perfect gifts to enable us to live out His perfect law and thereby reflect His perfect Son. That's the goal. We should want that as individuals and as a church. You know, I can think of, of one example being First uh, John chapter uh, 3, verses uh, 2 and 3. We usually only quote verse 2. Uh, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Future, right? We shall see Him as He is. We will be like Him. Let's bring that to the present, verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. That's the goal. We press on towards it. Why such an emphasis by the New Testament? Why such a pursuit of, of living like the perfect one, Jesus? Because life from the beginning was meant to be lived as Jesus lived it. And living out a life that helps others see Jesus is what our lives are all about. That's what the future will be about. People reflecting Christ to one another perfectly. The future will not just be about sinlessness. It will be about Jesusness, if that's a word. That's what our salvation is about now. Our salvation is not a comfortable life with sins forgiven. Forgiven, yes, sins are forgiven now. But God then uses our lives to help others see Jesus more clearly. And that happens when God uses various trials to refine our faith. 
to produce steadfastness. And that steadfastness is making us look more and more and more like Christ. When you say it is well with my soul in the face of your greatest loss, the world gets a glimpse of how precious Christ truly is. And they get a glimpse of the state Christ entered in order to save us. That's where I want to take you last. I want us to look at our Redeemer in trials. Like I said, we can't get through these trials alone. We need a Redeemer. Think about all of the uh, themes that James weaves together for us here. Slave of God. Joy even in trial. Steadfastness making us perfect. Did you know that Philippians and Hebrews use all three of those same themes to describe Jesus and the way he saved us? You see, what James spells out practically lines up with what Philippians and Hebrews spell out Christologically. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8 say, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself instead by taking the form of of a slave being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross you can see the mind of Christ coming out as James introduces his letter slave of God and of Christ Jesus our Lord here it is Jesus took the form of a slave Jesus who is God willingly became a slave and in obedience to his Father, suffered death in our place. He became a slave to become our substitute. Then the writer of Hebrews tells us twice that Christ was made perfect through what he suffered. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. It was fitting that God, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. How can you say that Jesus needed to be made perfect? I thought he didn't have any sin. Yes, the writer of Hebrews is well aware that Jesus didn't have any sin. He says it three times, in fact, in his letter... He's well aware that Jesus didn't have any sin, and we're about to see that was the whole point of, of, this, of this statement, is that he was made perfect through suffering. Uh, chapter 5 of Hebrews, verses 8 and 9, they help clarify what he means by Jesus being made perfect through suffering. It says, although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Listen to that again. He learned obedience... Through what he suffered. So in chapter 2 verse 10. Should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now he's saying. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. 
Here is the connection. Being made perfect refers back to his learning obedience through what he suffered. And that's still not to say that Christ wasn't obedient before that point. Rather, it's talking about, it's talking about Christ's vocation. He came to earth as a man, and Christ's obedience as a man was yet to be tested. Christ's obedience as a man still had to undergo tests on earth if he was going to qualify as our Savior. And get this, he passed every test with flying colors. You see, when our obedience is tested through what we suffer, we fail a lot. When we face trials, we curse, we get angry, we retaliate, we get bitter, we grumble, we criticize, we give up, we blame. Not so with Jesus. With every test that came to him in suffering and trial, he only proved obedient. Everywhere we fail the test of perfection, he passes it. Even when the greatest test came in Gethsemane, do I drink the cup of wrath or not? He remained steadfast. And by doing so, he and he alone became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So he became a slave. He was perfected through what he suffered. And lastly, he did it all for the joy set before him. We know that it's possible to have joy through trial because Jesus, even through tears, had joy through trial. You talk about somebody who was sorrowful. Isaiah says that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But Hebrews 12.2 says that, amazingly, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. There was a settled contentment in his father. There was a deep delight in his father and what he knew his father would give him as he went to the cross. He was going to obtain the joy of his exaltation to the father's right hand. He's going to attain the joy of leading many sons with him into glory. Sons and daughters like you and me. And it was for that joy that he endured the cross. But get this, Hebrews 12, 3 even goes on to say, Consider him, believer, who you, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And then the rest of chapter 12 goes on to talk about our sufferings under God's discipline. So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus became a slave to be our substitute. He was made perfect to become our source of salvation. And now we see that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross so that as he sits at his father's right hand, he is your strength for the future. That you may not grow weary or lose heart in all of your various trials. So yes, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. 
Because those trials have so much potential of making you more and more like Jesus. Your Father wants to make you perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. He wants you to be conformed to the image of Christ. A good day isn't necessarily defined by comfort and ease and sunshine. A good day is a day that we are made more like Jesus. Anne Judson and her husband Adniram Judson were missionaries to Burma. In 1816, while they were on the field, uh, their almost eight-month-old son, Roger, started contracting night fevers, and eventually he dies. And Anne writes home to her parents, so this would be Roger's grandparents, getting this note. Some of you are grandparents in here. And uh, she writes this. Our little Roger, our only little darling boy, was three days ago laid in a silent grave. Eight months we enjoyed this, the, the precious little gift in which time he had so completely entwined himself around his parents' hearts that his existence seemed necessary to their own. But God has taught us by afflictions what we would not learn by mercies, that our hearts are his exclusive property, and whatever rival intrudes, he will tear it away. Good night. How do you write something like that? You write it when James Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, 2 to 4 are in you and part of you. God has taught us by afflictions what we would not learn by mercies, that our hearts are His exclusive property. What shall I say about the improvement we are to make of this heavy affliction? We do not feel a disposition to murmur or to inquire of our sovereign why He has done this. We wish rather to sit down submissively under the rod and bear the smart till the end for which the affliction was sent shall be accomplished. Our hearts were bound up in this child. We felt he was an earthly all, our only source of innocent recreation in this heathen land. But God saw it was necessary to remind us of our error and to strip us of our only little all. Oh, may it not be in vain that he has done it. May we so improve it that he will stay his hand and say it is enough. And then nine years later, in 1825, Adniram is in prison. And he's uh, suffering this miserable uh, six-month imprisonment for his faith. And Anne is now at home with a three-and-a-half-month-old daughter. Her name's Maria. And during this time, Anne contracts an illness that prevents her from being able to feed Maria. 
And again, listen to what she writes about that situation. Our dear little Maria was the greatest sufferer at this time. My illness depriving her of her usual nourishment. And neither a nurse nor a drop of milk could be procured in the village. By making presents to the jailers, I obtained some leave for Mr. Judson to come out of prison in fetters and take the little emaciated creature around the village to beg a little nourishment from those mothers who also had young children. Maria's cries in the night were heartrending. When it was impossible to supply her wants. I now begin to think the very afflictions of Job had come upon me. When in health I could bear the various trials and vicissitudes through which I was called to pass. But to be confined with sickness and unable to assist those who were so dear to me when in distress was almost too much for me to bear. And had it not been for the consolation of religion, meaning her her Christian faith, had it not been for the consolation of religion and an assured conviction that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy... I must have sunk under my accumulated sufferings. James is preparing us how to suffer like we read of here with Anne. He's trying to shape that assured conviction by telling us to count it all joy when facing various trials. How will you respond to your trials this week? My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would give us this perspective that even in the midst of trial we can rejoice that God will use them to strengthen our faith and make us more like His Son. But when we fail to rejoice, when we fail to be steadfast, let us remember that one has gone before us who has never failed. And He is Jesus And we eat today in remembrance of Him. Right now, in all of your various trials, this table is God's gift to you. It is a reminder to you. We eat in remembrance of the One who was victorious for us over sin and death so that we might not grow weary and lose heart. And may the Spirit make Christ's joy and Christ's steadfastness and Christ's perfection, may He make them all your own as we eat.